Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry, cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I am not silent, and not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One, you are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust, they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He, trusting the Lord, let the Lord rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb and made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you, from my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied, and they who seek the Lord will praise him. 
May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Thanks, John and Angela. Uh, David, I invite you to uh, come and share your thoughts with us. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Morning, everyone. I think it must have been pretty hard to be a Roman soldier. You know, they spent months, sometimes years, away from home in all climates, from searing heat in North Africa to the, to the freezing cold of a Northumberland winter. And strict discipline at all times and some pretty dispiriting tasks to carry out. <clears throat> I often wonder how they felt about carrying out crucifixions. Fighting and killing in battle formation or in guerrilla warfare is one thing, but, but carrying out what was in effect premeditated ritual torture in cold blood must surely be something else. It does seem, however, that, that tasks like that did have some compensations for them. Uh, Historical documents galore attest to the fact that they regularly took spoils of war from those they had defeated and killed. But no doubt, uh, they they were not the only conquering armies to do so. It it was certainly happening in in King David's day, for instance. But so it was that uh, on that fateful day when when three criminals, as they thought, were crucified just outside Jerusalem, the soldiers on duty sat down to share out their victims' possessions according to whatever system their centurion decreed, which evidently involved drawing lots for the right to take the the larger items of clothing. On that day... One of those items belonged to a man from Nazareth called Jesus. Well, for the soldiers, it was just another day's task on their deployment in just another obscure corner of the Roman Empire. They had no idea that they were fulfilling a thousand-year-old prophecy in the writings of that subject nation. How could they know any more than they could know that this man... Jesus was the Son of God. Of course, they may have heard the religious leaders and others mocking him for claiming to be the Son of God, but then with their rather blasé attitude to their own gods and goddesses, that probably wouldn't mean much. However, following the three hours darkness and the subsequent earthquake, even the centurion was moved to think that there might be something in it. But no 
they surely wouldn't have been familiar with what we now call Psalm 22, which, with the benefit of hindsight, we can clearly see to be a prophecy of the Messiah. That particular Psalm of David describes a lonely soul surrounded by an antagonistic crowd, saying specifically, they have pierced my hands and my feet, not difficult to interpret, and then they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But no, those soldiers couldn't have known of the prophecy that they were fulfilling. But there's something even more amazing about this little scenario. Psalm 22, in in which their actions were foretold, is absolutely central to the whole crucifixion story. Uh, we, we know this because Matthew records that Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, uh, which means, as Matthew uh, helpfully explains, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those, of course, are precisely the opening words of Psalm 22. And, and when you see how closely some parts of the psalm foretell the crucifixion events, you can appreciate, perhaps, why Jesus might have given voice to its words. There, there is an argument that says that uh, for a people who undoubtedly knew much of their scriptures by heart, it would only be necessary to quote the first line for people to call to mind the rest of the psalm. Uh, in much the same way as I could quote you the first words of the very next psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, and you would instantly continue with, I shall not want, he makes me to lie down, and so on. But I think it's very possible that Jesus spoke the whole psalm, uh, and here's one of the reasons why. John's Gospel, in chapter 19, verse 30, records that Jesus, before he died, said, it is finished, which is not too different from the final phrase of Psalm 22. He has done it. Jesus, of course, didn't need the hindsight that we have. He, he had the foresight. He knew that his mission was to fulfill his father's purpose by taking away the sins of the world. And that meant by suffering and dying in the most horrific of circumstances. He knew what it meant. He knew what Psalm 22 was about. He knew how personal it was for him. And so by quoting Psalm 22 in full, as as I believe he did, he made it clear to all those who heard and to all those who would would later read about it that he... (coughs) He was well aware of his mission and was fulfilling it gladly in his father's service. There's another reason for believing that Jesus spoke the whole of Psalm 22. Unless he did, we're left with the feeling that he said something that doesn't make any sense at all. Something that simply doesn't fit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Could Jesus, even in that darkest hour, literally darkest hour, really have thought that? 
Could it even be that God would forsake his beloved son? No, of course, it could not be so. Of course not, except in one very particular sense, which, which I'll, I'll try to explain, and, and please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. God is, is omnipotent. God is all-powerful beyond our imagining. He can do anything, which means he could have arranged it in some way for Jesus to be spared the cross. We know, in fact, that Jesus asked for that to happen. Well, sort of asked. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. But but that was not the father's way, and Jesus knew it, of course. God's purpose was to be carried forward through the death of his son. So in that very particular sense, it was necessary for God to briefly, inverted commas, forsake his beloved son in order for that to happen. Now, I'm not sure I've ever explained that very well, but uh, uh, it it leads to to two related thoughts. And, And the first is this. We need the remainder of Psalm 22 to see that Jesus understood, and, and for us to understand, the context of those words from verse 1 of the psalm. And the second is this, we need to grasp, if we possibly can, how the Almighty God felt about that world-shattering event as it was taking place. Now this is a difficult topic because how can we understand the emotions of a being so far above our human thinking? But we surely have to believe, don't we, that this moment was a really difficult moment for the Father who said of Jesus, this is my beloved Son. Never mind that, this was the way God had determined it would be, or perhaps because it was the way. He had determined it had to be. This must have been, as far as we can understand it, a dark, dark moment for God. I'll come back to that shortly. But but first, let's return to Psalm 22 and and let's recognise the positive aspects of it, which, which made it appropriate as a last message, if you like, from Jesus to his followers then and forever. It it may not at first seem to be positive. Think, for instance, how Jesus must have felt as the crowds gathered around the crucifixion scene. The Roman soldiers were largely indifferent, uh, but the Jewish religious leaders certainly were not. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God, they shouted. That's uh, Matthew 27, verse 40. And uh, he trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he wants him. Verse 43. And it's inconceivable that Jesus was not transported by this to the words of Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And for a moment it almost seems as if Jesus' determination might be wavering. But no, 
he presses on, I believe, through Psalm 22 until he reaches the passage from verse 22 onwards, which one commentator that I read astutely described as, as a hymn of victory. Jesus knew that he had to suffer to complete his mission, but his quoting of Psalm 22 in full, as, as I believe he did, shows that he was supremely confident in the Father's plan for deliverance for him and through him for the world that God loves. Because how else can we interpret verses like these? Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. 25, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow before him. Verse 30 and 31. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. Does that sound like a final message from a man who'd given up hope? Who feels abandoned by the one from whom he received his commission and the strength to carry it out? I don't think so. In which case, it therefore follows that in quoting the words of verse 1 of Psalm 22, Jesus must have had a slightly different interpretation in mind. I understand that the tense of the original Hebrew verb might perhaps have been better translated, why did you forsake me, which is slightly different from why have you forsaken me. And it has been suggested, and I rather like the idea, certainly given how Psalm 22 ends up, that, that Jesus was in effect not asking a question at all, but, but rather trying to ensure that his followers understood what was happening and why it was happening. Jesus knew very well why he was allowed to suffer on the cross. It's almost as if he's giving an explanation for us. As if he's saying, do you want to know why my father allowed me to be crucified? It was to save you. So was, was Jesus abandoned by God in that hour of greatest need? <clears throat> of course not. That's unthinkable. But I'd like to go back to something I suggested earlier and, and try and distinguish between that and the emotional impact of the death of Jesus on his Father in heaven. Of course, <clears throat> it's nothing new, this disputation about the significance of Psalm 22 verse 1 and, and Matthew 27 verse 46. It's been going on for centuries. But I think it was reignited by the publication of Stuart Townend's challenging modern hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. That's in our own Praise the Lord songbook. It's number 177, which means that it has achieved a certain amount of acceptance. But I know that it does divide opinion, not least, I think, here at the Bethel. The reason is that in referencing the crucifixion scene, it includes the lines, how great the pain of searing loss 
the father turns his face away. I don't know <clears throat> that some are offended by that, suggesting that it implies that God failed to support Jesus in those moments. But I'm going to state quite categorically that that is not at all what it's saying. In fact, if you look on the internet, you can quite easily find a video in which Stuart Townend himself explains how he wanted to tell the crucifixion story from the perspective of what it cost the father to give his only son. That's what it's all about. What the writer is saying here is, if I can dare to put it this way, that God could hardly bear to look at what he knew was happening. Had to happen for his purpose to be fulfilled. And I think that fits exactly with the symbolic period of darkness that came over the earth. It tells us how much he loved his son, but also how much he loves us. It's about what it cost the Heavenly Father to to guarantee our salvation. And if I might just point out something else about the song, uh, in the second verse, it, it leaves you in no doubt that its inspiration is in Psalm 22 and Matthew 27. It references the mocking voices that insulted Jesus on the cross, uh, and indeed goes even further by, by challenging us to be sure that our behavior doesn't by default place us amongst them. And how about this? It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Well, if that doesn't take you to uh, to Matthew 27, nothing will. And then in the third verse, he echoes the words of Paul in Corinthians chapter 2. I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And also Galatians 6. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, whenever we meet to share bread and wine, we stand in awe of what Jesus did for mankind. Of course we do. But let's... Also, never forget what it cost our Heavenly Father to guarantee salvation for you and for me. Thanks, David. As a teenager, that was one of my favourite songs, I think because of the emotion that it conjures up. Also the questions, the questions between why and how, and how did it happen. But the triumph, the triumph in that last verse, I will not boast in anything but I will boast in Jesus Christ and what he has achieved for us. It also reminds me of Isaiah 53, from which some of the words are taken. And as we focus in on sharing the bread and the wine, I'd like to read some of it to you. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned up to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Of course we remember the bread broken and torn as the symbol of the body of Christ on the cross. But isn't it also that symbol of his daily life, his daily bread, the life he led as a perfect person in compassion, in compassion. Let's share that and those thoughts together.